0: Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1
1: to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. It's 1 5 p.m. and you're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I hope you had a lovely, lovely Easter. Uh, It's nice to be back. Um, Over over the course of today's show, we'll be focusing on, on what happened late last week that really, really rocked not only Kenya and East Africa, but the continent as a whole. Um, the attacks in the, in the northeastern or eastern, uh, town of Garissa in Kenya. Um, in studio, we'll have, uh, Africa correspondent from the Daily Maverick, uh, Simon Allison, um, who's really been doing some work and reporting on this to really, uh, give us a, a deeper picture of what's going on. Simon, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, King Good to be here as uh, well. I know it's a
1: bit of a downer, but, uh, I mean, is this something you were watching? I hope it didn't ruin your
2: Easter. Is this something that you've been watching and, and, and working on? You know, I have been trying to follow Terrorism and counterterrorism yeah. on this continent, yeah. and it's 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 a soul destroying niche because bad things happen all the time, yeah. um you know. And, and and you put this, you know, one hundred and fifty. What was it in the end? Uh, 148 140 depending who you ask. Yeah. The numbers sort of vary, but yeah. but but r- nearly one hundred and fifty students killed in cold blood. Some were beheaded, some were executed, um and the bullets in the back of the head. And it, it just you, you just think what you know what are we doing how can we stop this why is this still happening this is the 21st century this yep. is the age of smartphones and mtv you know this is incompatible with people still blowing each other's heads off yep. in the name of religion um and we're seeing it everywhere and this year in particular it feels like it's getting worse boko haram in nigeria have been worse this year than they have ever been um, we've got groups in Libya who are acting in the name of the Islamic State. You've got attacks on museums in Tunisia, also by local groups in the name of the Islamic State. You've got Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, um, kidnapping people, blowing stuff up. And you've got Al-Shabaab in Somalia. It, it really is a pretty devastating phase of this continent's development. And it's, it's hard to watch. It's hard to write about. And, it's hard to think about because we don't want to think about these things we want to think nice happy thoughts and this is not them
1: i mean not only is it unpleasant but as i mean as we've been talking about it and trying to, and you've been writing about it i think what i've been finding difficult is trying to unpack all the all the different themes so i think there's there's definitely issues of religion there's uh the religious exclusion economic exclusion there's issues of poverty um And then there's issues of of power play. There's always money and corruption and graft involved. So I think what I've been finding difficult is really just trying to pick up out all the pieces that that contribute to how do we, so the question is how, why is this still happening? How does it happen? And then what are all the different players and different themes? And that's, I mean, that's really what I'm hoping we can do today, man.
2: And it's, it's, it's extraordinarily (laughs) complex, isn't it? Because we're talking about, um, we 're talking about history first yeah. of all, um, decades and decades of history in that part of kenya centuries of of history if you yeah. want to talk about the colonial times and and the various influences and all that it sounds like yes it 's a long time ago the stuff doesn 't matter, but it does it 's still so important in in developing um that area and 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 and, and, and the dynamics of the region, the political currents of the region all have their roots there. And, yeah, then we're going to talk about religion, yeah. which is a big factor. We've got to talk about identity, and we've got to talk about citizenship. You know, who is a Kenyan? Who's not a Kenyan? Yeah. These kinds of questions are so important and so difficult to answer. So... um where do we even begin? I That's think, the question. I mean,
1: I think a, a great place to start is, is probably looking back, as you've mentioned. So over the past, say, 30 and 40 years, so I, I'd like to really just to, to speak to Carolyn Hellier. Um, she's ex-BBC. has done a lot of reporting from DRC and Somalia and Kenya and in a lot of these conflict areas. Uh, but, Simon, what I wanted to steer the conversation towards is if you look at the history of, of, of Kenya, uh, the northeastern region, uh, and Somalia, um, a lot of these issues have been going on for a while. So you'll see in the sixties, there was a vote in the Northeastern region to actually secede from Kenya and join Somalia. Um, and, and, and hearing that it's, I mean, it's not that surprising that there will still be so many issues around our people in the East and Northeastern and Kenyan Somalis. Are they truly Kenyan?
2: Not at all. I mean, if you look at the the, the Somali flag today, yeah. it's a light blue background it's with a, with a white star on it's it's it. It's a five pointed star. Yeah. The five points of that star represent the five Somali regions. One is Somalia proper as we yeah. know it today. One is Somaliland up north. One is Djibouti. Yeah. One is the Ogaden region in Ethiopia. And the other is the um, is that northeastern region yeah. in Kenya, which yeah. has a large Somali population. Yeah. And when Somalia was founded… The whole point of Somalia was it was the realization of this pan Somali dream. You know, in the sixties everyone was talking about unity and pan Africanism and Somalis, let's get it together under one flag. Yeah. Um but they could uh, they couldn't persuade Djibouti to join. They could only persuade Somaliland yeah. and that didn't go very well, and that's a whole nother um story. And um Kenya refused to t- to allow Somali portion um, to, to join Somalia proper, and as did Ethiopia, they both wanted to keep hold of that. And uh, you know, it, it's quite an odd one because you look at a map of that region, and there is a straight line going directly, sort of vertically down the map that divides Somalia and Kenya. I mean, it's one of those. Uh, there's a lot of straight lines in Africa. Incredibly unnatural. Things. Yeah, so somebody sitting somewhere with a ruler, with a ruler and and, like, and that like, is, that is exactly what yeah, happened. Yeah. And no wonder we are still trying to deal with the fallout from that today, because this is not a territory that should be divided in half like that. Yeah. These are people that have lives on both sides of the borders. They are Kenyans, but they are also Somalis. And in denying them core identities, and, and you know, in many ways, the people of that region, they're, they're, they're not allowed to be Somali because they're Kenyan, yeah. but they're also not allowed to be Kenyan. You know, they're not fully embraced into yeah. Kenyan society yeah. or Kenyan politics. They're not treated um, the same as full Kenyan citizens. And we've seen this with the recent counterterrorism measures um, proposed by the Kenyasa government, which have been targeting ethnic Somalis yeah. in Kenya, be they Kenyan citizens or Somali refugees. It doesn't matter. Um, the government has has gone around, detaining people, picking them up off the streets. There have been assaults. There have been reports of torture and intimidation aimed at ethnic Somalis, many of whom are Kenyan citizens. So, so what is the benefit of being a Kenyan citizen? I mean,
1: that's a problem. Uh, Simon, just to back what you were saying. So I think, I mean, you're right. There's definitely issues of, of how are these countries are divided um, and, and, and who falls on what side. And I think, that I mean, if we look back at the state, the Kenyan state, through the colonial Kenyan state through to the 80s, I mean, we have uh, what are now being Properly acknowledge as massacres that happened in the 80s, um, in towns of Wajir, in Gassira, I mean, in Garissa, sorry, um, where you had everybody being treated. And this will echo very similarly to what's been happening now with Operation Usalama, but where everybody who was Somali was being then called uh, a shifter. A shifter basically means bandit. Um, and basically this is the quote unquote shifter war in, in which case, um, the Kenyan state and the Kenyan army was going through in the, in the, under the guise of disarmament, uh, and going into homes killing people uh women and children this is as early as the 80s um as you've mentioned much more recently with operation Usalama and post westgate um we've seen things like this happening again people are being rounded up in easley um we had what was being called in quotes the kasarani concentration camp where, where a lot of uh, somali kenyans are being rounded up and it's basically do you look like you might fit the bill yes you're gonna be you're gonna be jailed for we'll coming to your home and we'll, we'll ask questions later um I mean, and, and what, what does that do to our people? If we acknowledge you in words as being Kenyan, but then when push comes to shove, we have no problems coming and taking you and your family from your home. Caroline, are you with us?
3: I am indeed. Fantastic. There
1: we go. We've been trying, Caroline. <laughs> okay, can fantastic. You You're now in, yes, we can hear you. You're now in studio with Simon Allison and I. Um, how are you doing oh, today?
3: Fantastic. I'm okay, thanks. Okay. I just want to correct yeah. something. Yeah. I've never reported from Somalia. Okay,
1: sorry. So I'm, I'm sorry to misrepresent <laughs> you. Thanks for clearing that up.
3: Okay. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Now,
1: Karen, I'm really interested in some of the writing you've been doing, um especially how you've placed uh the Garissa attacks and insecurity in Kenya, um and placing that in the context of um Somali and Kenyan um sort of regional politics over the past 30-40 years, especially things like the Shifta war, um and some of the massacres we've heard in we've had in Eastern and Northeastern Kenya. Could you please tell us more about that? So, what is the history of that region and, and how do you think it's playing out in what we're seeing today?
3: Well, I uh, uh, as as your Previous person said, you know, the shift of war was, was very much, um, a fallout from the, the politics of colonialism. Yeah. Um, and the south, the north was given away to Italy and the south was kept by Britain and it became part of, of northern Kenya and, and, and as your colleague said, Somalia claimed it. Yeah. Um, and then what happened was that in 1963, uh, you had this war break out. Um, and it was basically a fight between Kenya and the Somali-backed Northern Frontier District Liberation Movement. Um, and it, but it was built on long-standing grievances, mm. you know, the, the underdevelopment of, of ethnic Somalis. Um, and, and as your colleague said, part of the Kenyan propaganda was to, to label people shifter bandits. And, and thereby ex- excluding them from from citizenship. And what they did was they forced v- civilians into protected villages. Now we saw we saw this also in the Acholi wars in Uganda. You know, where they forced people into these so-called protected villages, which were essentially concentration camps. And what they did was they eradicated a, a, a whole way of life, a pastoral and nomadic way of life. You know, uh, uh, and people had to abandon the way they'd earned their living. Um, They had to abandon their their animals, and they were forced to move away to survive. And so many of these people then ended up in the shanties around the towns and cities in Kenya. Um, And interestingly, it's those very shanties that are one level of the recruitment for al-Hijrah, which is Al Shabab's associate in Kenya to recruit. You know, I, I want to emphasise that that recruitment is on. You know, it's not just class based; it's mm. it's across the board. But that has become part of, of of the you know recruitment message, and and part of this. You know, we also had the the Wagala massacre in 1984. You know, where where the the security forces gathered thousands of men onto an airstrip, and just opened fire on them, and they tried to hide their bodies. And Kenya's only just facing up to that now. Um, so with all of this, you have this long, deep politics of marginalization and isolation. And so you have Al-Hijra, which, as I said, is, is the, the Kenyan associate of um, Al-Shaba. They play on all this. You know, they, they play on this marginalization of Muslims that, that and Somali Muslims in particular, that they have been denied citizenship, that they're abused by the state. And, and of course, everything the Kenyan government does um, in response to so-called terrorism just reinforces their message.
1: Um, I mean, Caroline, thanks for, I think, as we've discussed over the weekend briefly, I think that's been really missing from how we understand what's happening, what happened last weekend and what, and what's, and what's been happening with, with insecurity in Kenya. Um, so with, with the context that you've brought us, uh, how do you think a, a deep understanding Of, of, of what's happened over the past 30, 40 years should inform how we, how we deal with insecurity in Kenya now. Do you think there's any, there's, there's anything we could do better based on the kind of nuance you're bringing to the table in terms of historical understanding?
3: Well, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there is no doubt that there is this, this marginalization both of, of the northeast Mm. uh, and, you know, parts of the coast. Um, but also, there's a there's a kind of subliminal Christian politics at play, um, where where the the underlying discourse is that Kenya is a Christian nation, yeah. um, and this gets this then once again all of these things reinforce these recruitment messages that these groups play on heavily. Um, you know, many Muslims live in the most... We, we had a famine and drought in northern Kenya in 2007. Yeah. And, and many of the Muslims up there, they live in these these famine-affected provinces and they face poverty, insecurity. Um, and likewise, look at Garissa University. Um, you know, a, a large portion of, of, of Garissa... Is actually owned by wealthy politicians from Nairobi. Um, where where were they when this attack happened? Why why were the were the families and the victims abandoned and not and not given the attention that they should have had from these wealthy politicians? I mean, some of the the victims were sleeping out in the open the night after the attack. Mm. And yet, yet Kenyan politicians own hotels in Garissa, so you have this constant, um, you know, reinforcement that they don't count as Kenyan citizens, and we see this then again with the the crackdowns, Operation Usalama, all of this, and until that changes, and the whole issue of so-called terrorism because i hate that word um, but until it is changed into a non-sectarian issue because this is this is they're just repeating al-shabaab's messaging which is that it is they are standing up for muslim stroke somali rights um, and that's absolute nonsense because al-shabaab kills more muslims than christians so I think that's what's got to really, really, really change is that the Kenyan government's got to change its whole approach to Muslims in Kenya and it's got to make them feel that they are part of the nation of Kenya.
1: I mean, what I'm hearing from you is like it's, is that it's much more than military strategy. So you're talking about food security, about, about justice and judicial matters, about economic inclusion. So I think that's a much wider approach than just sort of military and warfare. Sorry, Simon, I think you have a question.
2: No, I was just going to ask, um, how politically charged is this issue for the, the politicians in Nairobi? You know, there is this dominant Christian discourse. How, I mean, can they afford to change it? Do they feel that they have to sort of toe this line um, in order to keep their, their seats? Is that part of the problem?
3: Well, I think that's part of the problem, but I also think it's actually a lot more implicit than that. Um, you know, we, we we have, because, for instance, Kenyan Muslim politicians can be just as guilty to mm-hmm. some extent, and they play to different audiences at different times. Um, and And I think it doesn't help that we have, that it's not just a Kenyan, you know, we have this problem in Britain, and I'm beginning to see this problem in the Congo even, um where where muslims are, are just banded together as as an idea and then and then penalized you know we we had the we had the um attacks in in the northeastern congo last year and the same thing was happening there the security services were just bundling random muslims um disappearing them away and then then they wonder why they start to feel victimized. And and all of these groups play on this, and whether it's in Kenya or Uganda or Congo or Britain, indeed. So, you know, this is something that needs to be addressed. We need to remove the problem of violence away from a sectarian discourse.
1: I mean, kind of. I mean, thanks for that. I think my only final question is just about the TRC that you mentioned around some of the massacres that took place in the 80s. Um, I mean, is it too little, too late, or do you think there's a there's a genuine opportunity for the Kenyan state to actually send a message that that they they're willing to acknowledge and 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 make right some of the misdeeds of the past? Do you think there's a genuine opportunity there that that could really go a long way in increasing security?
3: Well, there is a genuine opportunity, but I don't have too much hope that they're going to take it because that's not how how Kenyan politics plays out. Um, And unfortunately, we had a golden opportunity this past weekend. We had an opportunity for politicians to step forward under the you know under the heading of One Kenya. And to remove this, this at the time, and instead we didn't. We just had more repetition of the same. I mean, the, the first street, the first um, street demonstrations against Al Shabab in Eastleigh were actually faced tear gas. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these people are on your side, and you're tear gassing them. What does that tell you?
1: Caroline, I hear you. I'm 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 trying to remain hopeful despite <laughs> uh, despite what you say, but I'm trying to remain hopeful that hopefully we can take this opportunity. Um, anyway, Caroline, I think that's all the time we have. Um, thank you so much for making time to to be on the show. My pleasure. thank Okay, you. perfect. Thanks a lot, um, Simon. I really was want to touch on something Caroline said, um, especially about uh, these people are on your side. Um, and I want to talk a bit about some of the work you did with the Institute for Security Studies. Now you did you did some some research and some writing on, on sort of the anatomy or the portrait of a, of an extremist or of a terrorist. Um, and I think you found some interesting findings that they're not these other foreign, strange people with, with ridiculous ideas. I think you, you found something quite interesting. Exactly. You know. If-
2: Terrorists,
1: um, because, and I agree with Caroline. Yeah. It's,
2: it's such a problematic word. It's such an other. It's like
1: the insurgents thing from the Iraq. <laughs> just it's just these other exactly. people that need their own um, way.
2: And and it's sort of the word itself implies these are crazies. Yeah. These are completely not from our realm of experience. Yeah. Um, but of course they are. And and the research. I, uh, that I wrote about w- was conducted by Anneli Burtza, who's a researcher from the Institute for Security Studies. Yeah. She is um, extremely knowledgeable about Somalia and Kenya and um, militant groups operating and extremist groups operating in that area. And, you know, she she did a groundbreaking thing, and it sounds so simple, yeah. you know, because we all have theories of what... Terrorists are and what makes terrorists, you know, some people say, well, it's clearly something about Islam that makes people into terrorists. Some say that, oh, you know, it's about poverty and discrimination and neglect. Um, these are all good theories, um, but they are just theories. Um, and what Annalie Boerter did was she went to, members of militant groups, specifically al-Shabaab and the Mombasa Republican Council, which is another um, radical group, not a militant group, there, but they're a radical group uh, in Kenya. Yes, I
1: think they were, they were uh, working to secede uh, Mombasa yes, that exactly. from, from the rest of Kenya.
2: Yeah. And she actually went to members of these organizations. Um, some were current members, some were former members, mm-hmm. um, some were in jail, some were still serving, you know, a, a, a good cross-section. And she just asked them. You know, it's a deceptively simple it's idea. Like why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Why did you join these organisations? Yeah. And it, the response was incredible. First of all, let me let me tell you what um, what that person looked like. You know, these um, w- you know this cross reference. Yeah. What kind of person came out of that? Yeah. And it was really interesting. Almost all of the people she spoke to grew up in a male-dominated household. So even if the father had passed away, usually a male relative had stepped in to assume the patriarchal role. And and that's very interesting when you start wondering about uh, gender norms and you know, what it means to be a man, or what it means to be a woman. And, and does this play in, into the decisions that we make later in life? Um, almost uh, more than 70% of the people who responded had received corporal punishment at home. So that's another factor that's coming in there. Um, unexpectedly. Around 60% of all respondents were middle children, which is quite a bizarre thing. You know, you think that, uh, uh you know, it's well known, you know, we talk about middle child syndrome yeah. and that, uh, we speak that about middle children, um, feeling the greatest sense of not belonging to specific groups. But the idea that this should manifest the, itself in finding belonging in extreme groups is, is quite a strange one. Um, now, the most shocking statistic for me, however, was that something like six, i think it was sixty seven they were asked what was the final tipping point like yeah. what pushed you over the edge? Yeah. Uh, you know people can think about I mean a lot things. of us are
1: disgruntled with our governments and exactly. so on, but what you what know, takes what, you to the next level the yeah
2: sixty seven percent of respondents said it was some act of injustice committed by Kenyan authorities against them or their family or their community. Many singled out this idea of collective punishment, um, that they were being punished for other people's sins. Yeah. And many also singled out Kenya's counterterrorism strategy, saying that it was the the fuel that they needed to, to make this leap from being normal people to being um, members of radical organizations. Yeah. And that is something that... Kenya is not addressing in its counterterrorism strategy. So we have this we have this clear link between you treat people like a terrorist, and some of them will become a terrorist. It's yes. a self fulfilling prophecy, and we are talking individuals here. Yeah. We're not saying the entire Muslim community is going to be one terrorists. step away from becoming. We're terrorists. talking yeah. individuals, but remember, it only takes four gunmen to do a Garissa attack. That's all it took. Yeah. So individuals are enough. We are needing to guard against individuals. Um, And yet this strategy is pushing individuals into the arms of organizations like al-Shabaab and the Mombasa Republican Council. And that is what really worries me because already I think it's too late to prevent the next terrorist attack in Kenya or even the one after that. These things, they breed for a long time. Um, They have a long sort of um, period where they fester and then they manifest. Um, and the sins, uh, the, the, the faults of Kenya's counterterrorism strategy over the last five years is what has create, helped to create the Garissa massacre today. And so what we're really doing now, the fight is not about the next terrorist attack because almost th- there's almost nothing Kenya can do to prevent the next one. It will happen in one way or another. But we're talking about how to prevent the one in five years' time, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, because this is a long-term solution, um, because it's a long-term problem. And no one is going for the long-term solutions. But You know why? Because they're hard. They're really hard to sell politically. Um, what politician – and, you, I mean, you, we've seen exactly the same in, in the Western world. You know, American politicians have – how have they responded to terrorism? They've invaded Afghanistan. They've invaded Iraq. They have um, – Put Muslim people on terror watch lists. Yeah, we had the stop and, and frisk happening ethnic, in major cities. It was the same idea and, of just you know, you know know busting so, in and busting hands. Kind of. So uh, it's not like Kenya is doing it any differently to anywhere else in the world. But but Kenya is falling into the same traps, I think. And um, the, the collective punishment that we're seeing um, of operations like Usalama is really the main problem here. Because what it's saying to all those people, that pool of people that Al-Shabaab will be targeting, it's also being targeted by the Kenyan government. They're, they're getting it from both sides. I mean, to be a Muslim in Kenya today is to be in an impossible situation. I think because unless you sort of loudly decry your commitment to the Kenyan state and, and hope that you don't get tear-gassed you know, as you march, I exactly. Then then you're then you're labelled a terrorist. Um, and it's yeah its it's a really difficult position to be in
1: i think i mean I think that's worth saying again honestly that that of the people surveyed and the, and the people who are inclined to being uh sort of extremists and part of these radical groups um you said what sixty seventy percent of them were claimed that the, the 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 thing that pushed them over the edge was actually actions by the by the state that's by the police by the army, especially this idea of collective punishment i think that's i think i think it really doesn't get any clearer than that that if we want to have a Uh, uh, a counter-terrorism strategy that's going to work in the long term, Uh, that's something we have to get right.
2: (laughs) And you start wondering, uh, there is enough data, there is enough research suggesting that this militarized collective punishment approach doesn't work. Um, It doesn't stop, it doesn't prevent terrorism now, it doesn't prevent terrorism in the future, it just makes the problem worse. Yet, leaders all over the world continue to embrace this as their main tool. Against terrorism, and you've got to wonder why this is. What is happening in the sort of internal politics that 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 makes that acceptable? Why is Uhuru Kenyatta, the president of Kenya, not standing up and saying, "Hey, we need to take a different tack. We need to change things." And then you start getting into the the, the political theories. You know, well maybe it suits him. Maybe it suits him to have a Muslim community that is. Marginalized and a victim and a, and a useful scapegoat for so many of Kenya's problems, you know. If Kenyatta can blame them on, well, these Somalis are the problem, not me, then, then he doesn't have to carry the responsibility. This is just, I'm uh, just a theory. Yeah. But, but <laughs> yeah. You start getting into these thoughts because so many of our leaders all across the world are ignoring the evidence That's They are ignoring the lessons of history yeah. On how to deal with these kinds of threats sorry,
1: Simon, I'll have to stop you there Um Just quickly, if you're just joining us um, You're on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central We're discussing uh insecurity in Kenya Especially after the Garissa attacks that happened um, Over the weekend uh, We're just going to go to our next caller Shailja Patel
2: uh, Shailja, can you
1: hear us?
0: Yes, I can Okay, how are you perfect doing Shailja,
1: sorry to keep you waiting Um Thanks for coming on the show Thank you. Okay, perfect. So, Sharda, um, um as mentioned, we're just talking about um, uh, insecurity in Kenya, especially in the wake of the Garissa attacks. Um, now, Shalder, you've done some some excellent work in Kenya uh, after post-election violence um, and, and and around issues around security. Uh, as a poet, as a performer, as a writer, and as somebody who gets who gets conversations going, um, and and I wanted to just hear from you. What do you think is the role of of the arts and your kind of work in trying to get some of these difficult conversations going on the ground?
0: Well, the same as the role of any concerned and thinking person, which is to see the facts and to connect the dots. Yeah. The part of the story that is missing in the global coverage of the Garita attack is that Kenya invaded Somalia three years and five months ago. KDS forces are occupying Kismayo, Somalia's main force where they are actually in bed with al-Shabaab and protecting al-Shabaab's monopoly of the very lucrative charcoal trade and taking a massive cut of it. And so until KDF get out of Somalia, until the war profiteers on both sides of the border stop making profits out of al-Shabaab's operations, Al-Shabaab is going to continue killing Kenyans. Absolutely.
1: Sorry, Shahid, i just love to stop you there. You mentioned this idea of war profiteers. Now, that's not something that's really being covered, in my opinion, very well in the wake of Garissa. Could you just speak about who, who these war profiteers are on both sides and, and how you think they're benefiting from the status quo right now?
0: Well, just going back to what I heard you say earlier, yeah. the way in which um, Uhuru Kenyaka and his regime have profited from Al-Shabaab is to switch... Is to Basically, divert attention from the ICC trials. When Uhuru Kenyatta came to power, hmm. he was facing trials for a trial at the ICC for crimes against humanity. The, in the wake of the Westgate attack in 2013, he leveraged that attack to present Kenya as a very vulnerable country that was a target for global terrorism and that needed a president who was absolutely able to mobilise all kinds of military forces against this terrible threat of terrorism, and that actually worked tremendously well, both as a narrative and as a force to get the charges against him dropped. What we know about KDF in Somalia is that it has been protecting and profiting from Al-Shabaab's monopoly of the charcoal Al-Shabaab's exports of charcoal from Kismayo increased after the city fell to KDF. There is a very lucrative cross-border trade in sugar across the Somali-Kenyan border that makes up Kenya's shortfall in domestic sugar protection, production. And again, various wealthy individuals and cartels on both sides of the border profit from that. Then we have the very lucrative illicit trade in arms and arms smuggling across the border from Ethiopia to Somalia, from Somalia to Kenya, and once again, a number of people at very high levels in the Kenyan government, in the Somali administration, in the military, the military is actually the main supplier of these illicit arms, are making huge profits.
1: I mean, I mean, Shaza, it sounds like we have quite an unconnected web there of, of people who are really benefiting from how things are now. So, I mean, how do how do you think we need to start breaking this up? Um, in terms of, of the KDF's role in this, the sugarcane sort of barons, the charcoal barons, the arms dealers, how do we start to sort of um, break apart this, this web of parties who are benefiting from how things sit now?
0: The first thing that needs to happen is a concerted global a national call for the withdrawal of KDF troops from Somalia. They have no reason to be in Somalia except to generate profits for war profiteers. Um, technically, a claim, the claim is that KDF is in Somalia as part of the Amazon peacekeeping troops. But the Amazon regulations actually prohibit neighboring countries from participating in peacekeeping operations for these very reasons, to prevent these illicit markets in smuggling and arms trade and so on bringing up. So there is no reason for Kenya to have troops in Somalia. And al-Shabaab has said repeatedly with every attack, these attacks will continue as long as they are Kenyan troops in Somalia.
1: I mean, members of the opposition have been calling for, for just that very recently. So Raila Laudinga and some of the uh, the prominent opposition leaders have been calling for that. Um, do you think there's any merit to this to this idea of Jubaland and this... And this and by Jubaland, I mean I mean, as you probably know, is this a, sort of a, a buffer zone between Kenya and Somalia um just to make sure that there's no spillover of of, of the insecurity from one side to another and uh, do you think there's any merit into having that as as a kind of measure or is that just is that just like a uh, dead in Absolutely the water?
0: not the creation of Jubaland is actually one of al Shabaab's primary grievances as well, and the basically the dismemberment of Somalia. Has been a plot between Kenya and Ethiopia to benefit themselves, to um, to basically disempower Somalia and defang Somalia as any kind of significant power in the region. But the creation of Jubaland was one of the, the major grievances of Al Shabaab.
1: So, I mean, it sounds from what, from hearing from you, it sounds like pretty straightforward. We need to get out of Somalia as soon as possible. <laughs> and, and, and that, that, that really removes KDF and, and the Kenyan military and their, and their benefit from this. I mean, what about, what about counterterrorism strategy at home? Do you think there's more we can be doing, um, in the country, in Nairobi, in Kenya, um, to sort of, to, to, to do, to, to work it's on security better? Sorry. Yes. Yeah.
0: And the second part of it, the yeah. first part of it is get KDF out of Somalia. Absolutely. The second part of it, stop dehumanizing Somalis in Kenya. Last year, we saw a massive ethnic cleansing operation that we called Katarani Concentration Camp, where an entire urban population of over 1 million Somali Kenyans were rounded up, incarcerated, without charges. Um, Many of them disappeared. Women were raped. The levels of police extortion and violence were horrifying. Mm. And this is a war on Somali Kenyans that goes back over 50 years, all the way back to 1963 when Jomo Kenyatta launched the Shikta Wars to punish the northeastern province of Kenya for voting in a referendum to join Somalia rather than to stay with the newly independent Kenya. So as long as Somali Kenyans are dehumanized, are denied documentation, are denied full rights and benefits of citizenship, are subject every day to violence, disappearance, rape, night raids, home invasion. They are people living under military occupation in their own country, and they have no reason to believe they are anything other than an enemy of the Kenyan state.
2: Shalja, um, this clearly clearly Kenya has to make some hard decisions. Do you think the current Kenyan leadership, in particular President Kenyatta, has the kind of moral authority to make those decisions? Bearing in mind, yes, his charges at the ICC have been dropped, but those came against the backdrop of non-cooperation from government and intimidation and bribery of key witnesses. Um, Can Kenyatta really be the man to lead Kenya out of this situation? Well, the question is not
0: can he. The point is, He is the head of state, his is the ruling administration, regardless of those who question its legitimacy, regardless of the moral and political um, complications, the deeply compromised nature of presidency, he is the head of state and he has the political authority to actually take the measures that are necessary at this point nobody else can until the next election if we were to have a a change of power then it will fall to the next um regime that comes into power but at this point uhuru kenyatta is sitting in the hot seat and it is so clear that he has failed miserably repeatedly he failed to prevent the westgate attacks he failed to his administration failed to Listen to the intelligence that said the Garissa attack was going to happen. There was a failure to respond in time. Hundreds of lives could have been saved. And his regime has repeatedly targeted and ethnically cleansed the Somali Kenyan population. So he's the only one who can roll back those measures, redress those measures, take necessary action to prevent the next attack.
1: Uh, Okay, perfect. Um, Shalja, thank you so much. Um, um, we will we will continue to unpack some of the things you brought up, and um, thanks for providing that 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 extra insight and context that I think has really been missing from from the quality of conversation. Shalja, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. My pleasure. Perfect. Um, Simon, there's. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to start. A lot has (laughs) a lot has come up. I think one thing we have not discussed is. Is, is that after the attacks we saw in Garissa, the uh, KDF and the Kenyan government say they, they bombed two Al-Shabaab camps in Somalia. I think they said it happened yesterday. Um, now that was a bit confusing for me. So, so one, is it that they knew where these things were the whole time and just didn't feel like until the weekend? <laughs> or is it, can, is it possible that they're just making it up? Because, I mean, that, that really perplexes me.
2: It's, it's extraordinary yeah. how, um, military action so often happens when it is politically convenient for it to do so. Uh, the most recent <laughs> example, most egregious example that yeah. I can think of recently yeah. is, uh, when President Goodluck Jonathan, soon to be former president, um, he delayed the Ken, the Nigerian elections mm. by six by weeks. Six weeks? And in that six weeks, he promised to defeat Al-Shabaab. And we Uh, all laughed, Boko Haram. And we all laughed. Oh, sorry, Boko Haram. Um, Because this is a feat his his military had not been able to achieve for the last two, three years. Um, And yet suddenly in that six weeks, there was a flurry of offensives and recapturing of towns and killing of Boko Haram militants and extraordinary military successes. Some were hyperbole, of course, but quite a few of them were real Um, and and. It was – what had happened, you know, what you started to realize was was Kenyatta was using military strategy – not Kenyatta. Sorry, I'm getting all, Good all like, confused. Okay, we we'll like about Jonathan. Nigeria. Good, Good like like Jonathan Nigeria. Was, was, was using his military yeah. strategy as a campaign tool. Yeah. And I think that that's what this um, bombing of Al-Shabaab bases is. It, it's a way for Kenya to say – Look, we're doing something. We reacted. See, We've reacted. we reacted. Of course, they knew where these bases were. Of course, they could have bombed them earlier. But but the bombing doesn't achieve much because there's not much in these bases. You know, we're talking a few houses and a few vehicles and stuff like that. It, yeah. it doesn't do much to set back Al Shabab. Yeah, and surely we're fighting show. different
1: wars. So we're fighting the tanks and air force war, and the, and and we're seeing guerrilla tactics happening at home. So
2: sure, is this the same war we're fighting here? <laughs> exactly. And of course, that's part of the problem. Is uh how do modern states? react to these, these insurgencies, these, these guerrilla tactics, these terrorist tactics with their old-fashioned weapons. And, of course, they do have newer weapons. They have sort of rapid response teams, that kind of thing. But as we're discovering in Kenya, the rapid response teams don't respond <coughs> quite so rapidly as anticipated. Um, in this case, I think they were stuck on the tarmac at uh, at an airport in Nairobi, and they couldn't find a plane to take them to Garissa. In time.
1: I mean, the reports are quite worrying. I mean, depend who you ask, between 9 and 12 hours for them to be on the ground and ready to go. Um, if you're just joining us, um, you're on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We're discussing, uh, insecurity in Kenya falling on from the Garissa attacks. Um, we're just about to go to our next, uh, uh, caller who is Jasmine Oppenheimer, the Africa Director of the Terrorism Research and Analysis Consortium. I hope I got that right. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Hello, Hello. Jasmine. Sorry, can you hear us? Okay, clearly not. She'll be back in a second. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's something I'd really want to ask Jasmine. I mean, how I mean, how do states I mean it's urban warfare, it's a different ballgame. It's happening amongst your own citizens, um and we've seen the impact that it can have on exclusion. Absolutely. Religious exclusion, economic exclusion and so on. So Absolutely. how how do you fight this war properly? How do you fight this war properly? (laughs) And
2: bearing in mind the nature of um, radical Islam is changing so rapidly over the last year or two. Um, We're seeing the influence of the Islamic State um, coming into Africa and really changing things. You know, Boko Haram has declared their allegiance to the Islamic State. Several groups in Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia have done the same. And we really are looking at a new Context and the question is: Where does Al Shabab fit into this context, and how much is this attack also about Al shabaab proving its own credentials within the the, the radical Islamist extremist world? Um, so yeah, I mean it's something that
1: has confused me. Um, in that we have. We have Al-Shabaab, we have Boko Haram, we have ISIS, <laughs> we have Al-Qaeda. <laughs> so, I mean, as you predicted, and I'm so excited that you saw this coming, um, Boko Haram did sort of pledge allegiance to um, uh, to, the, uh, to ISIS. Um, and I think we've, uh, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, that Al-Shabaab has been aligned with Al-Qaeda. Yes. But I th- if I'm not wrong, there's been a, a kind of call for Al-Shabaab to, to also be, so to have an alliance with uh, with with ISIS. So I'm just I'm just trying to understand what's the well, what is now becoming a global sort of terrorism. You network.
2: Know, Al Qaeda and ISIS are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You know, they, they 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 ISIS came from Al Qaeda, and so really, like groups like Al Shabaab are in this impossible position where they are now trying to choose between which one and figure out how to um how to position themselves. But I think I believe we have Jasmine on the line. Yeah, with I think us Jasmine, now. are you back? And she really is the expert on this.
1: We're losing here, man. <laughs> so it, it seems to be, I mean, in my sort of silly understanding of global geopolitics, it seems to be almost like picking teams. It's it, like, it is very you know, like all like all, it's all extremists. The, the, it's all terrorist networks. But sort of who, who whose team are the, you the on? The metaphor I like yeah. to
2: use is, 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 is of a franchising operation. So what happens is, you know, KFC, <laughs> for example, the, the similar. let's look at the similarities between KFC and ISIS. Um, KFC, you... Go into a country and they don't they don't open a shop themselves. Yeah. What they do is they say, hey, you can use our equipment, you can use our logos, you can use our menu, and um, then you can make your own KFC. And that's what's happening here. Is is Al Shabab? Or not, or let's say Boko Haram. Boko Haram are not suddenly part of ISIS. ISIS hasn't suddenly. You know marched over from Iraq and Syria to join up with the guys in Nigeria what 's happened is a local operation um, staffed by local rules, funded by local money, is saying, "Hey, we can get some operational benefit from using the sort of cloak of the Islamic state there There is some advantage in it for us and and what the advantage is really is that if Boko Haram can say hey we 're part of the Islamic state, that makes them." a lot more scary than they were before. And for the Islamic State, what they can say is, hey, we've expanded to Nigeria, and it hasn't really cost either Boko Haram or the Islamic State anything at all to engage in this sort of uh, mutual winning propaganda battle. Um, Of course, it will have some implications in in the longer term, there will be more sort of a, 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 cross-pollination of people. So, so you will get some people, um, either going to, between Nigeria and, and in Iraq and Syria, or at least uh, communicating via online forums and exchanging ideas and expertise and, um, y- you know, the rules on, on how to run these kinds of organizations, which of course, th- these are huge organizations that govern territory. They're very complex. Um, they've, it's very hard to do. And, um, the other thing is that, it's it, it might change the way the local organizations go about their business. It, it, on the one hand, it's tactics. Um, and we've seen this with Boko Haram. They've gone for these really, you know, in terrorist lingo, they, they, they're described as spectacular attacks because they kill a lot of people. They, they generate a lot of headlines. Um, and that really is the Islamic State's modus operandi. It has become Boko Haram's. And, you know, people are saying that, that there are theories that, what Al shabab is doing going for 148 students at you know garissa university is not their traditional target they've liked places like westgate mall which has foreigners and you know it's in nairobi it's at the heart of the capital this is this is a low-hanging fruit you know this is um in territory that you know where where there would be people sympathetic to Al shabab um it's easy for them to access there and they've gone and they've just killed as many people as they can and the theory is that that Maybe Al Shabaab are trying to prove their credentials and say, hey, we can also do these kinds of spectacular attacks that qualify us for membership of this elite jihadist organization. And that is extremely worrying because what ISIS has done is, although Al Qaeda and ISIS, you know, they kind of want the same thing, ISIS has moved the boundaries of, of brutality so much further um, that all other radical, militant, extremist, Islamist groups are trying to match that. And that's why we're likely to see more spectacular attacks in the near future, as long as ISIS remains such a potent force. Um, Simon, I mean,
1: I think, thanks for really making that clear. As I mentioned,
2: my, my understanding of how this all plays it
1: together is not, is, is quite sort of rudimentary. Um, I mean, we've just got a few minutes left. I'm just wondering if we can just wrap this all up. I mean, we've, we've had a sort of a lot of, of points of view coming in. So I think one thing that seems to be on consensus between our experts and you with your work is that, is that KDF needs to get out of Somalia. That seems to be like Yes, underlined. they
2: do. But, yeah. but w- w- what people mustn't um, expect is that the attacks will cease instantly. Yeah. Uh, KDF getting out of Somalia is not a solution to the problem. It is the first step of a very long solution. I
1: mean, and, and with that said, just, uh, you know, as we've seen with, with the states uh, in America, I mean, um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, removing a military from, a, it's 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 not a snap your fingers and it happens thing. So it's roll out. It exactly. seems to be take a bit of time to get out of there.
2: And, you know, there is a reason that, that yeah. Kenya has, has been so desperate to yeah. create a buffer zone yeah. because Somalia is chronically unstable and has been for the last 30 years or so. Yeah. Al-Shabaab is one group. There are many you know there are many problems in Somalia, and and Kenya is is worried about Somalia in general as a whole. Um, and getting KDF out of Somalia, maybe it will solve the Al Shabaab problem. Maybe it won't. But even if it does, it, it doesn't solve the the sort of structural issues that were created by that straight line, that 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 crazy border that some white guy drew yeah. so many years ago.
1: I mean, and then, I mean, that's, that's more the sort of external military strategy. And I think a lot of what came out from your research with the ISS and some of the people we talked to is really about what needs to happen at home. So we're talking about 30, 40 years of, of exclusion along, along religious lines, along um, economic lines. And we've got a, we've got a people that are feeling marginalized. We've got a Somali Kenyan citizenry that is Is, is receiving the message that they are second class citizens. Um, so how do we, (laughs) how do we fix that in, in the next sort of month? (laughs) Because I mean, it's been, as, as we've mentioned, it's been happening for 30, 40 years. So I mean, I suppose the first step is to try and, is to try and genuinely send a message to these people Mm. that, that they are truly Kenyans
2: and that, and that they do belong. Absolutely. But it's a, it's a counterintuitive strategy because the, the first instinct, of any politician, and you completely understand that, is to show a strong, forceful response and to really show the people that they're taking this stuff seriously. And, you know, when people are talking about, hey, we need extra security desperately, um, for a president to say, hey, the best thing for us to do is to leave our doors open, hold hands and be nice to each other. No, leaders aren't going to do that. What they're going to say is, if we want more security okay we're going to arrest anyone who looks suspicious we're going to put more guards around we're going to create a more militarized atmosphere that is the obvious short term solution but in the long term it means this kind of stuff is going to keep happening
1: uh, i mean that's as you mentioned it can be counterintuitive especially compared to the next best idea which i think is building a wall around kenya so i think <laughs> <laughs> i think i think we're doing a bit better in terms of the ideas department um yeah I think lastly the only thing we haven't sort of mentioned in too much detail is just the aspect of corruption that we can I mean we've got the seventh largest government spending um on on warfare and military expenses on the continent um and that could become the first in the world it doesn't matter if half of it is is being misappropriated and half of it is being stolen um and there's and that's not an official stat that's a figure <laughs> speech um it's just this question of until we figure out our very big systemic issues around graft corrupt and corruption that we've been battling ever since 1963. Um, it kind of doesn't matter what kind of strategy we have if we can't implement. Um, if the police is too corrupt, all well, this is too corrupt, corrupt, then.
2: Exactly. Um, you know, it is corruption basically makes anything you do unworkable. It puts holes in any strategy. Um, you know, no matter how sophisticated a border Kenya puts up, if the guy manning that border post is prepared to turn a blind eye for $100, that all that technology is useless. It's irrelevant. All that money being put into it has been wasted. So maybe that's something that really needs to be addressed urgently is, is that people in, you know, officials in Kenya, Need to get rid of this of, of this culture of corruption, but of course that's a whole another debate that, that, that's been entrenched for thirty. I think 40 that's years. another. I
1: think that's an. I think that's another another show in <laughs> itself. I mean, that's definitely something we'll be talking to. Are we, we've definitely we've set up a few interviews, especially focusing on corruption and transparency. Sorry, Simon.
2: I was going to say I, I do have a, a a positive, optimistic thought to end the show. There we go, on, Um which I think we desperately need at this point. And it's that uh, someone was telling me yesterday, and it's kind of borne out by a few statistics I've seen, we're actually living in the most peaceful time in history. I know it sounds strange because we're bombarded with these, these graphic YouTube videos of people getting their heads cut off and horrible headlines of massacres, but this kind of stuff has been going on in human history forever, but we haven't always really known about it in such detail, you know. 40 years ago, if 100 people got killed in Iraq, would we know? Would we care? If 200 people got killed in Kenya, certainly in South Africa, we wouldn't know about it, and we wouldn't really have cared. Now we do know about it, and we are caring. And that's why it feels like uh, the, the burden of violence feels greater, but the actual numbers of violence are less than they've ever been before.
1: Simon, thanks for that. I think we literally needed that rainbow at the end of, <laughs> at the end of the show. We are running out of time. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, that was the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Make sure to, to keep checking us out on the podcast and on the website. We'll have some follow up work on, on Kenya and insecurity on the region. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 PM on CliffCentral.com.